Voice of San Diego podcasts are sponsored by the Bob Nelson Charitable Fund, honoring the San Diego Harbor Police Foundation. Voice of San Diego podcasts are sponsored by the Bob Nelson Charitable Fund, honoring the San Diego Harbor Police Foundation. Thanks for listening to this Voice of San Diego podcast bonus episode. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego. We will have, of course, our normal show coming up this Friday. Andy, Sarah, and I will break down the news of the week like we always do. But I wanted to share this discussion I had recently. It's from our new live stream show. runs every Monday, every Wednesday, and every Friday at 1.30 p.m. It's called Voice of San Diego at Home. It's on Facebook, it's on YouTube, it's on Twitter's Periscope service. I spoke that last week with Laura Cohn. She's a local education advocate and expert, works for the Workforce Partnership. It seems like all of the restrictions from the stay-at-home order are boiling off into one simple one. Do not congregate inside. But that's what schools are. I'm very concerned about schools. I have been talking about them at length. There's very little that can go back to normal if schools aren't open. You can't open an economy, for instance, if all the roads are closed or are crumbling because of some earthquake or something. You would want to get the roads fixed. Well, schools are like that. If kids can't go to a place every day, their parents can't work. And if they can't learn skills, they won't be able to work. So here's my chat with Laura about what we're facing right now, what's in the way, what a new reality of schools would feel like, what it would look like, and uh, when it might ever happen. My producer also wants me to be sure to say that this is audio from our live stream, Voice of San Diego at Home. So Laura especially has a little bit of a different sound, a little tingy, a little echoey than we'd usually have for the podcast. Sorry about that, but we thought it was a worthwhile conversation to share. We've got to figure out schools, we've got to figure out childcare, and to do that, I'm going to bring in my friend, Laura Cohn. Laura, hello. Hello. She's my go-to expert on all things schools and child care. She's been doing tons of research before this all happened about the crisis in child care. And, and now the entire infrastructure of child care has vanished. Uh, and I assume we can get it back. What do we know right now about how many people in San Diego County, Laura, need child care? Well, uh, you know what? It's really hard to know right now how many people in San Diego County need child care because of the layoffs. And so um, the estimates that we had before said that we were about 190,000 child care slots short of what we needed. But I can't tell you at this point um, what we're short of. I will say, though, that the child care sector is not shut down. So um, near as we can tell, about half of the child care centers um, the, the sort of the larger places are still functioning and 97% of the family child care homes are open for business, but they all have reduced enrollment right now. Um, whether they're open or they're closed, they're teetering on the edge of insolvency um, and really can't figure out how they'll keep operating in the kinds of conditions and constraints that people are talking about or that are in place right now for child care. So fewer kids, per room, um, um, the fewer, less shuffling between rooms means that they have to staff up at higher levels. 
they have to clean more, they have health things, health um, uh, protections in place, and it's all way more expensive than the prior operating model, and they were already operating on the thinnest of margins uh, before, so it's a, it's a big crisis. My understanding is the governor has said that childcare facilities can open right now for non-essential needs. Like we can go, we can That's have right. childcare. Okay. Yeah. But one of the problems is that childcare professionals often get paid very little. And if they were on unemployment after this crisis began, if they got on unemployment, they may not be very excited about going back to a job that paid less than unemployment, where they might be in danger of catching a virus. What is What do we understand right now about that dynamic? Yeah, two big concerns about the, about the possibility of providing more child care. Yeah, so one of them is what you just described, the ones that are, the workers who are laid off now are being paid unemployment plus that federal um, bump, and um, they're making more money than they were making um, when they were working in childcare. And the second one is that a good chunk of the childcare workers, and I don't know the precise number, but the providers in town tell me it's a good number, are over 65 so are, or are at greater risk of COVID infection or of severe consequences of COVID infection. And so they may not want to come back. We may not you know, think it's a good idea to encourage them to come back. So staffing up is really um, a big worry, a huge worry right now. Am I right to be freaked out about schools right now? Yes, you should be freaked out. I am too, because we it's not figured out. There, there are no, obviously there are no easy answers. There's not much guidance coming down from CDE. Every district appears to be figuring it out for themselves. They're talking to one another and talking things over, but there's no there's no obvious model for how to run schools in this context. Um, but I have, so the one thing I can say that is encouraging is that we've got countries in Europe that have opened their schools already and Asia as well. And so by being behind them in the, in the COVID crisis curve, we're going to be able to watch what happens, um, how they approach it, but also whether, infection nodes come out of uh, the reopening of those schools. Well, one thing American educational leaders are very good at is taking lessons from overseas, right? <laughs> Not, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, I kid the uh, yeah. leaders. They're, they're doing a lot of work. But I think that I, I, one of the things I'm trying to understand is, do you think that we're going to try to make the best of social distancing and distance learning or do you think we're going to just hold off until it's okay to go back to school with minor modifications? I feel like there's a competing, two competing groups of people. There's one that says, this is a lost time, cut it off, make up the time in the future with summer school or longer hours or longer years, forget about it. And then there's another group that's saying, no, 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 no enhance this distance learning. We don't know when this is ever going to get over. We need to make sure that people can learn now. And, and are those truly two competing camps or uh, is there margins on both? I'm not, I'm not hearing it as competing camps. I'm hearing it as scenario planning. <laughs> yeah, I think that the districts that I've talked to are planning to open in the fall considering how they can start to do staged opening or experimenting with things in the summer, but planning to open the fall in the ad adapted 
versions or um, scenarios that um, we could talk about. Um, but if the, if COVID got worse over the summer or if there were some evidence from those other countries that reopening, even in adapted circumstances, was causing explosions in the virus, then they would have to go to the the other version of trying to make do with distance learning. But in the meantime, kids are losing learning, like, you know, for real. And whether it's, you know, kids of privilege, they, parents tell me they seem, they feel like their kids are at best frozen in their learning time. Um, but kids from more challenged circumstances where parents are still working, um, where their learning conditions are way less than ideal, they're undoubtedly losing ground. That's what happens every summer. We used to call it the summer slide, and this is going to be a massive COVID slide. So the urgency to shore up learning for those kids and try to do some adapted version of schooling for all of us is, and for the working parents um, yes. is, is super high. Let me we, ask you this. Yeah. Uh, let me put out two facts and see if you agree or two okay. strong opinions laced <laughs> with facts. All right. See if you agree. One, distance learning, this you know, idea of, of uh, there being an, a hub of communication that helps parents facilitate the teaching of their kids with, uh, with all these technological platforms is a nightmare for working parents. <laughs> uh, true or false? <laughs> it's oh, totally true. I mean, I haven't heard anything different from anyone, whether you're a parent who has the luck to be able to work from home, being both being a work from home worker and being a teacher and taking care of your house, et cetera. It's too much. And it is a nightmare. If you're, if you're still working outside the home, then nightmare also, because you're not there to help your kid and, and they're struggling along or not. Um, and if you're unemployed, then you're really, you know, on Maslow's hierarchy, you're really worried about your survival and, the likelihood that you're able to be the best teacher to your kids while you're also trying to be the best parent and make ends meet is not so high. I'm, I know there are some parents that are rising to this occasion yeah. working out for them, but I think we can agree that it's in the way minority. <laughs> so the second part of this fact laced opinion is this question of, I don't think it seems impossible. It is impossible to socially distance six feet apart in schools, kids who are six to 15 years old. I do not, I cannot picture any school setting where you could manage to keep people apart. I look at our school and it's an old school. So maybe it's not designed in the same way, but there is no part of that school inside where those kids could separate. The school rooms are, are small. The, there's choke points all over the place. The idea that you would have any, any significant number of students there and socially and keep them six feet apart is absurd to me. I, I, I am so tired of hearing people say that because it seems like, like they don't even have never been to one of these types of schools. Yeah. Am, I, am I wrong? Could you imagine having kids separated well, in a school like that? My imagination was aided by going to visit Cajon Valley School District's newly reopened um, childcare okay. um, program uh, a couple weeks ago. So it's been going out for, that was during its first week. It's been going out, it's in its third week. 
and they they had it for those kids, which is a small number, but still seeing it as an experiment. Um, the kids were pretty compliant with staying apart from one another. They weren't doing any group projects. All the stuff you did was on your own. They weren't sharing any equipment, including jump ropes. Everybody had their own jump rope. Um, so I think there are ways that you can increase the distance between the kids, you know, beyond what's normal by a significant amount, but it only will work if we stretch out the day. So there's just no way to do social distancing um, on our campuses unless you stay, you know, have kids in shifts, basically. That's the only possibility, whether it's certain days or parts of days. Um, otherwise, it definitely won't work. And I will, I'll just add that California has really high class sizes relative to the to other places in the country. And so the challenge for us, because we've been tolerating these high class sizes for all this time, is going to be higher than it is for for other schools. Yeah. I, I mean, what you're saying is like you would you would basically make class sizes a third or a half of what they are. Right. And that's uh, I mean, that's not going to happen. Right. I mean, there, there's no way. My teacher aunt, and she, like she had it all figured out in her mind. There's going to be a morning shift and an afternoon shift. Teachers would take their planning time in the middle when kids are eating lunch. So your your school day would be half as long. Okay. Um, but you would see half the kids, and you would just repeat the curriculum morning and afternoon. Other school districts probably will have can probably conceive of a more nuanced, sophisticated approach where kids come on for certain things and offer others. It's going to be a really complicated dance, is what it comes down to, and that's without touching the need for working parents to to be at work counterpoint what if we just go back to school like what what like uh, are we should we not just wait until it's okay to be together and are are we concluding though that that's just too long but let me uh, yes we're concluding that that's too long i'm okay. i'm married to a guy working on a covid vaccine yeah he he has uh, he's very cautious about the timing until a vaccine is available, unless and we get really lucky with the first ones out of the, out of the shoot. But so it, it would be, do you think it's accepted as consensus that there is no normal school until there's a vaccine or a very successful treatment? Correct. And that's, that's the consensus, not just that you think that's what the, the administrators are operating off of. Absolutely. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, that's a gut punch. Unless, the only other unless I can add is there's some question about how effective or ineffective kids are at transmitting the virus. Exactly. Like, can we get to, a, that's what you're talking about. Europe, there's a lot of, of like Denmark and other places that are figuring out or saying the kids are so unsusceptible to their, or whatever, they're not vulnerable to this to the point that they can be together There's and evidence at this point really mixed. I, and I've looked really carefully at it cause it's a crux question and um, it's not conclusive. So uh, we just, that it's good. Again, it's good for us that other people are trying. I will say though, towards the optimistic side that, as I said, there is still childcare operating in San Diego County and has been throughout the pandemic or the epidemic. And, I'm not aware of any COVID nodes emanating out of any of those child care centers. 
So right. that's promising. Let's let me draw out a nightmare for you, <laughs> or a nightmare to some people. Mm-hmm. So let's let's say that the decision is like San Diego State that schools will not start on uh, in live uh, settings in fall. That they make a decision that San Diego Unified and LA and the state decide, hey, we're not going back to campuses in the fall. We're going to do this distance learning. And let's say that there's a lot of parents who've had a horrific time managing that over the last couple months. Look at that announcement and say, well, I'm going to go look at some of these online charter schools or homeschool platforms that have already been established. They've been working on this problem for a long time, and they at least know in some cases how to manage the internet better than what we've experienced so far. I'm going to go to them. So we have this situation. Cindy Martin, the superintendent of the San Diego Unified School District, and Austin Butner, the superintendent of the LA Unified, two biggest school districts in the state, wrote in Cal Matters yesterday. We can post the link. They said this is the worst financial crisis or worst crisis in the history of California schools. And so they say that we can't do everything we're supposed to do to get ready for this year with a 20% cut or whatever they're looking at in financing for this situation. And, uh, and you know, we have to do more with less, basically. They're saying we have this giant deficit and we are gonna have to do, we're gonna have to do smaller class sizes, some distancing, whatever. We're gonna have to do some sort of device. And then what if you add to it 10, 15, 20%, 30% of other kids whose parents decide actually we're gonna go to this charter school or we're gonna go to this uh, 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 home school pro- platform? What if that happens? I mean, are we going to start to see a, a, a dissolution of the school system unlike we've ever seen? I mean, that sounds like a realistic scenario to me. Parents will do what's best for their kids and for themselves as long as they have those choices available to them. And um, as you know, and hopefully the listeners know, the money follows the student. Exactly. Suppose the state could protect. They could They could. I mean, I know money's scarce, but they could decide to backstop the enrollment of the school districts. They could freeze it at the 1920 levels and um, and protect them against that kind of exodus. But that's just more that's more money. That's that's taking a chunk of money that needs to be spent somewhere in the COVID crisis and, and putting it there. But it would stave off the dissolution of the schools school districts as your nightmare scenario. So. I mean, if you were if you were a parent, like we're, uh, you know, and and we do get that announcement that says uh, at least for September through January, we're not going to do, um, we're not going to do class. You're not going to come on campus. You're going to have to continue this distance learning. Yeah, what, everybody understands this is a what if. This is a what if. Yeah. This is not. By the way, that's a problem right now. You have uh, Gavin Newsom saying like, hey, we're going to open schools in July or something. And everybody freaks out. It was an offhand comment. And you have that lady, the, the public health officer in L.A. saying, we're not going to get out of the state of home thing for two, three months. Turns into this national news, CNN, everything. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Stop with the offhand comments, powerful people. <laughs> Stop with the offhand yeah. comments. Especially yeah, there's ambiguity about whose decision it is. There's yeah. absolutely ambiguity about that. And that's what's fueling this confusion. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if that, if, if we do have to confront a distance learning scenario in the fall, which is hypothetical right now, 
how would you advise parents to start to decide whether they can handle it and 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 how to manage it and, and should they be thinking about you know these homeschool platforms or these or these other more developed online um, educational systems i mean Parents don't know what their own work situation is going to be in September. It's really hard to game these things out because of all the different variables. So one of them is what, you know, what your own situation will be. Will you be going to the office in the fall? Will you be welcome? Not if my kids are home. But not, but not required to go to the office. Will you still have a job when September comes? Um, and then the other thing that parents will want to be calculating is, there's, as I was mentioning before, there's big variation amongst school districts in the level of sophistication of their distance learning approaches. There's variation between schools, among schools within school districts, and there's variation from teacher to teacher to teacher. So who your child is assigned to for next year and that teacher's skill level, and of course they don't tell you that till the day before school, but that teacher's skill level at, at managing learning and supporting learning in a distance way is another factor that parents would want to look at. Um, I know, you know, some parents will be our planet headers and we'll get out in front of that. I suppose we'll decide no matter what the form of the 2021 school year is, I think I'll be better off in this homeschool um, environment or this charter that's better at it. Um, that's definitely possible. But what would you, what would you need to see to be able to say it's okay to go back to school? Like, and, and what could you do to make, uh, I had this idea that I've been trying to uh, shop, which is like the only place in my school that I can picture people separating well is outside. Like uh, mm -hmm. maybe we just put everybody outside, summer camps outside, everything outside. Is there anything you could do to a school or to the way things work that would make people feel more comfortable about it? Like what data point would you need to see to be able to say, hey, kids aren't really not only a threat to themselves, but a threat to people they might encounter. What, yeah. would, you, what would you need to see to, to be able to communicate that effectively to people? So we would need, if we could get evidence that kids were low, slow transmitters or low transmitters, that would be helpful. If we could see some specific scenarios about how to increase the distance amongst kids, recognizing that it will be imperfect for the comments in the, in the chat, um, and I think we will be able to get evidence of that. If we could see specific plans from the school districts about how they'll do this blended situation and collaboration between the school districts and the after-school providers so that they can stitch together um, a full day experience for kids and families, um, those would be some of the conditions I would look at. And then just generally what's going on with COVID, it, you know, are we are we sloping down or have we peaked back up and there will be shutdown. So even if we do figure out a scenario for, and I, and I hope we will for reopening schools in the fall, if the epidemic picks up in, in hot spots, we have to be ready for things to shut down quickly. What we want to see is that a COVID node in one school doesn't necessitate the shutting down of all schools in a district or, or um, yeah. in the county. We'd like through testing, tracing, and tracking to be able to um, isolate the um, any kind of transmission nodes that crop up in schools and shut down that school and, and protect that community without doing a widespread shutdown. 
Well, that's that's a really interesting point because I, you know, one thing about schools is kids get sick all the time, like constantly. Like I was sick for, I'm still sick all the time. I mean, not now, I guess maybe we should just do this, but sick all the time. And it's going to be terrible when a normal flu or anything breaks out in a school and, and you have to, you know, it's like our, our complete, our, our entire view of sickness has been just jostled to the point where like, we can't, we can't handle anything anymore. It doesn't seem like we're going to have to, like, if somebody gets sick at a school, how do you keep it from getting shut down? Because, well, there's going to be rapid testing by the yeah. fall. It's okay. going to be saliva testing instead of a nasty swab up your nose. Okay. Um, so that kids will be willing to do it. Yeah. That, the rapid testing is what fixes that problem. There, there's a problem we can fix. <laughs> Does your husband need any help? Should I send some Snickers? Like, is he, he's coming up with a vaccine. Should we, should we send him any, any help? Uh, well, love to- the good news is that Scripps Research has, um, is allowing somewhat more intensity of work in the lab starting this week. So he's able to work a little bit faster and uh, yeah, just keep uh-huh. hoping for that. All right, we did have a question come in. I, I don't know that either of us can add, add to this, but do you think there will be enough government assistance, rent relief, mortgage relief, and debt relief for our uh, before our economy collapses? Uh, no, I, I don't. I don't foresee them doing. There's a lot of pleas among the school districts asking for state help, and the state is just asked for two trillion dollars uh, to support uh, a group of states that they represented. I. Maybe, maybe some of that will come, but it doesn't seem there's a lot of hostility to it in the Senate, the uh, the conservatives, and and others, uh, and so I don't know that that's coming anytime soon. Um, have you guys you you deal with federal funding sometime? Have you guys seen any indication that there's more support coming for for families or for or for uh, local governments or anything? No, we see we see what see that the House put out a proposal. Um, yesterday, which includes funding for helping people get back to work who've been um, laid off. Uh, but it was a House proposal and yeah. we're as pessimistic as everyone else is about whether the Senate will pick it up. Yeah. Well, uh, before I let you go, you did a bunch of research before the crisis about the child care situation. Uh, and a, a lot of the language in there said, like, it, even with a booming economy, <laughs> you know, it's and now that's changed a lot. What was the situation? before the crisis, as far as people needing childcare who couldn't connect with it? Yeah. So this report is available at childcare.workforce.org. And although it is contextualized in our booming pre-COVID economy, the basic points that it's making are totally coming home to roost in the COVID context. So we found, even at that time, that childcare in San Diego County was scarce, inconvenient, expensive and of really varying quality. And the fragility of that system is totally laid bare right now. But the other thing that's very much elevated that was one of the main points we were making is that our childcare system such as it is, is an intimate part of our economy. And when it's fragile, that means our economy can't thrive. And that's what we're able to recognize right now that child care and the care of our kids is what enables our economy to function because a huge chunk of our most productive workers are parents of young children and they have to have child care in order to work. 
Yeah, it really drove me nuts when I started talking about this, when people say, well, well, that's separate from the discussion we're having about our businesses and their businesses opening. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, having access to childcare is not separate. And not just for people directly involved with it. It is part of the entire infrastructure. It's like saying roads are separate. Roads aren't separate. You know, they're de dealt with by different people. They're they're intimately involved in in the functioning of our economy. But we've we've gotten in a really bad habit here in San Diego, in particular, of letting someone else deal with childcare, and that someone else being the state and the feds. We think, um, but they they haven't done a very good job of dealing with it, and we haven't done a very good job of both doing what we can here locally to shore it up, but also advocating to the state and federal government about how critical it is for, for our economy. So I think we're woken up now. Yeah. <laughs> Last week, the county decided to invest the dollars out of its local CARES Act funding for essential worker child care vouchers, and they challenged the city to match it. And the mayor held a press conference with Councilmember Chris Kate and um, Supervisor Nathan Fletcher on Friday saying that they intended to move forward with meeting that match. So this is the first local funding. It's federal funding, but with local discretion that anyone um, can remember being allocated in San Diego County. So we're, we're awake now and we're, we're ready to see what we can do to support it. Uh, what was your website for child care again? Childcare.workforce.org. Laura Cohn, you can see why I wanted to have her to talk about this. We'll bring her on as we as we see developments come on. She's uh, uh, been a close friend from, of mine for some time. Thank yeah. you so much for joining and good luck and wish your husband uh, good luck. We'll, uh, we send him our, our collective um, hopes and dreams. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Voice of San Diego podcast bonus episode. You can follow Voice of San Diego at home on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Those air on Mondays and Wednesdays. And of course, if you don't catch it live, they're available to watch anytime on those feeds at Voice of San Diego. And on Fridays, we talk to a Voice of San Diego reporter about their big story for the week. That airs on Instagram. So you can find us on whatever app is your favorite. We're at Voice of San Diego on each one. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief, and this show is produced by Nate John. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.